Turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark 16. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. It'll come up on the screen anyway. This morning's message is going to be a little bit out of the ordinary, a little bit different to those that are used to being around here at Sovereign Grace on a Sunday. Generally speaking, we usually take around 40 to 45 minutes to examine one text of the Bible. We go deep into one text and we examine what it has to say to us, what it said to the original hearers, what it says to us today. And yet today we're going to be taking a topic rather than just a passage and looking at what the whole Bible has to say about it. And that topic is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the reality that he has risen indeed. And I want us to take this as a topic because this is life-changing and it is true and it changes everything. I've called this message, he has risen indeed. We're going to start in Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 together. This is the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you that we get to gather afresh today on Resurrection Sunday and gather around the glories of what you achieved in our place on the cross and what was confirmed when you rose from the dead. Lord, you know I feel weak today. But you tell us in your word that you can strengthen the weak. And so, Lord, would you strengthen my voice? Would you strengthen my heart? Would you strengthen the preaching of your word this morning? Would your gospel go forth? In Jesus' precious name, amen. You know, being a Christian is a wonderful thing, is it not? To just pause and stop of what it really means to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is life-changing. To be a Christian means that you know that you are forgiven of your sin. That your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. In the right sense, he remembers it no more. You've been forgiven. You've also been reconciled if you're a Christian. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been reconciled into a relationship with God the Father. And he is a father because he hasn't just put up with you or brought you in and sat you at the back. Once his enemy, you found yourself now seating at the table of the father where he calls you son and daughter. You've been adopted into his very family. And that can never change. For any of you that know anything about adoption, when the gavel of the judge comes down and you're adopted, he can't unadopt you. That is done. It is finished. And he not only adopts us, it says that in that moment when we put our faith in Jesus... They were actually given the gift of the Holy Spirit. God himself, both the Father and the Son, they come into our hearts in the form of the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. 
We know as Christians that heaven will be our home because God the Father tells us it is a guarantee. And he will hold us and care for us until he returns or until we go to be with him. To be a Christian is an incredible thing. We always have 10,000 reasons to praise as Christians. And yet in all reality, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then everything we claim to believe in is in vain. It is not true. The harsh and honest reality is that everything in Christianity hinges and hangs in the balance on one particular thing actually taking place. And it is the actuality of Jesus rising from the dead. If that didn't happen, you can just go home. Because this is a cruel hoax for gullible people. And they're not my words. They're the words of the Apostle Paul himself. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 14, he, wrote, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's telling us point blank that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything we believe in as Christians is in vain. If it is found that Jesus did not exactly rise from the dead, if it is proven that he did not rise bodily, physically, and actually from the dead, then the whole of our faith, indeed the whole of Christianity, will begin to crumble and come down like a pack of cards. It's a cruel hoax for gullible people if he didn't rise again. My friends, the good news I bring you this morning is he did rise from the dead. And we know it to be true. And we know it to be true because of all the evidence we see in the Bible again and again and again. And so this morning on this Resurrection Sunday, I believe the Lord wants to take some, wants us to take some time out to look at the overwhelming evidence that the Bible presents to us on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead actually taking place. See, if you're a believer here this morning, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. I believe the Lord wants to strengthen and cultivate fresh faith in your hearts for him this morning. I believe he wants you to understand that your faith isn't just written on the back of a napkin in the back of a restaurant somewhere. It is factual that you can stand on and proclaim and know deep in your heart. It's not only true in a faith sense, it's true in a logical sense. And if you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior at this point. I pray that even as I preach these words, that you will see for yourself that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in his name, you may have life and that in abundance. He has come after you on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And I believe he wants me to tell you about that this morning. And it is all proven to be true, but given by the fact that he rose again. Listen, just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. Just because it is a miracle of his grace does not mean when you examine the evidence, it is not reasonable. And so that's what we're going to examine this morning. I have six points. For those of you that think I can only ever do three points, praise God, I've managed six this week. Good news is they're short. But here's six points that I think build a case for the resurrection in God's word to strengthen our faith. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, to give you faith. Number one. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, number one, the Bible records the resurrection events as history. So that's an important point, because ever since the enlightenment of the late 17th century, the emphasis that it brought on individualism and reason 
Because of the Enlightenment, people for centuries now have tried to argue away the resurrection as a piece of fiction. So as a myth or a legend or some type of picture. But one of the things we need to understand is in the Bible, in all four of the Gospels, the resurrection is not some type of mythical fiction. It is reported as historical fact. And we have four different angles on it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels are written with both accuracy and precision in mind. And they're historical data. It's not a picture or a prophecy or a dream. It is history. And that's really important to note. Because each of these men took time to gather witness evidence, sometimes firsthand because they actually saw it, sometimes secondhand, and then write for us exactly what they saw in these four Gospels. And accuracy and precision is the name of the game. One of the compelling witnesses for me in this regard is Luke. We're told several times in the Bible that Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. I mean, I don't know about your doctor, but the doctors that I see, I don't want them to be slapdash. I don't want them to be, she'll be right. I want them to be spot on. You know, if, my, if I'm in a doctor's room, particularly if they're going to operate on me, I want to know that you've thought about this. You actually know what you're doing and you've really studied your stuff. So it is with Luke. The Gospel of Luke, we discover in chapter 1, is a piece of investigative journalism. It's a piece of investigative journalism so that the most excellent Theophilus, likely a Roman governor, could have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. And so Luke goes out on a mission and he seeks to interview everybody he can that saw what was going on. Jesus' mom, I'll chat to you. All the disciples, I'll chat to you. Everybody he could meet that had seen what was going on, he interviews them and he compiles the gospel of Luke for us. This is important. Because any idea then that I don't think the resurrection actually happened is just like a picture or a legend. We have to reckon with the fact first and foremost that the Bible records the resurrection as history. As an event that actually took place. Something that really did take place before people's eyes. And that's important. Because if we today were writing about COVID, or the Easter show, or the NRL grand final, we wouldn't be writing about it as some image. We'd be saying, no, this is actually what happened. That's exactly what they did. And now 2,000 years on, we read it. It's historical data. Number two. The Bible says that the resurrection would happen. See, this is curious to me. It's not just reported as history in the Gospels, but prior to the Gospels, it is recorded for us as something that is going to take place. See, for those of you that are new to the faith or really have no faith at all, it's important to understand that throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies spoken by 29 different voices, and they all relate to Jesus Christ. Many relate to his life, what he's going to be like, where he's going to be born, all that type of thing. Many relate to his death. Some 29 prophecies relate exactly to how Jesus will die, but some actually relate to his resurrection. Hundreds of years before it even happened. Hundreds of years before anybody had even heard of resurrection. It's prophesied about. Isaiah 53, for example. Isaiah is a book of prophecy and predictions about future events. Some of them would take place really quite quickly after the book of Isaiah is written. So, for example, the exile to Babylon and the people of God, that would take place quite quickly. Others would be hundreds of years later, namely the personal work of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah does talk about this Messiah to come a lot. And so in Isaiah 53, for example, we have one of the most important texts in the Old Testament. 
Because it all talks about Jesus. In Isaiah 53 verse 3, we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He's talking there about Jesus, this Messiah who's going to come. And no one's going to think he's a big deal. In fact, they're going to despise him and they're going to reject him. Even us as the people of God are going to despise this one. He then goes on in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. He's prophesying there about the cross, what Jesus Christ would do on Good Friday. What Jesus Christ would do is he gave his life as a ransom for many, how he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. Upon him would be the chastisement that brought us peace for through his wounds. We're healed. By putting faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we could be healed of our sin. And then in verse 10, He says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, listen, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's a remarkable verse. He's telling us there about the cross. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's Good Friday. He's dying. And then he says, on that day, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Well, how's he going to do that if he's dead? Therein lies the point. He will rise again. He won't die. He will be dead for a short time. But in that moment, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. My friends, it is subtle, but it is a pointer. 700 years before Jesus came to how he will not only die, but how he will Rise again. And the Psalm 16, in case you think 700 years isn't long enough. Psalm 16 was written a thousand years before Jesus. It was written like equivalent for us in a thousand and twenty-two. You know, it's a long time ago that this was written. And in Psalm 16, it was written by King David. And this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's a wonderful, intimate psalm from David. He's saying, listen, my life is difficult sometimes. It's hard, but Lord, in you I have refuge. I have no good apart from you. You're so kind to me, so good to me. You are always faithful to me. And then in verse 10 of the same psalm, he starts to prophesy about one to come. In verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, I'll let your Holy One see decay. Or as some verses say, some editions say corruption. It all means the same thing. It's talking about your body actually decaying. Well, the Holy One that he's talking about is clearly not himself. David never talks about himself as being a Holy One. He's talking about this Messiah to come, the one who is promised. And he makes it very clear that when he comes, his soul will not be abandoned to Shoal and his body will not see decay. Well, how does your body not see decay when it's dead? There's only one way. It comes back by raising again. Jesus' body never did see decay. He was only dead three days. He was risen again. 
And David prophesies it about a thousand years earlier. Peter in Acts chapter 2 and Paul in Acts chapter 13 both say that in Psalm 16, David was prophesying about Jesus. Prophesying about how he would die. And prophesying about the reality that in grace he really would come back to life. And Jesus himself in the gospel says exactly the same thing. He adds his voice to the choir. You see, in all four of the Gospels, they increase in momentum all the way through. You go from big parts of Jesus' life through to hours and minutes by the end. And in Mark, that's really exaggerated deliberately. And each and every time as the Gospel goes on, Jesus begins to tell them what's going to happen to him. So Mark chapter 8, he says, The Son of Man, meaning himself, must be killed and after three days will rise again. Mark chapter 9, the Son of Man will be killed and after three days will rise. Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man will be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. But three days later, he will rise again. I mean, don't get me wrong, the disciples were slow of hearing, but he has told you three times exactly what's going to happen. Then he dies and they panic, they have no idea what's going on. He's just told you, clue is, rise again. You know, he's told them many, many times. And my friends, as we look back on the evidence today, we have to understand this is certainly compelling for us. Not only does the Bible claim the resurrection as historical fact, it was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even said it would happen. And so we shouldn't be surprised that it happened exactly like they said it would happen. And when it did happen, the sheer number of witnesses to what took place is overwhelming. And that's my third point this morning. The sheer number of witnesses. I mean, if you hear something having gone on in somebody's life or in an event, you know, if, if that's told you by a bunch of, you know, two drunks in an attic, you might go, oh yeah, thank you for that. I will consider it. You know, it wouldn't be that impressive. But imagine you have a queue of 500 people, sane people, about to tell you, he's risen, I saw it. Well, that kind of changes things a bit. And that's exactly what the Bible says happened. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8, this is what we read. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is an incredible claim, is it not? I mean, just get your mind around this. Over 500 people have seen the risen Christ. The the way Paul writes it there is amusing. He's saying many of whom are still alive. He's saying to the Corinthian church, this was only written about 30 to 40 years after the event. He's saying to them, listen, many of these people are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go find them. Go back to Jerusalem, have a chat to them. Because they're there and they'll tell you, yeah, I saw him. It is overwhelming evidence. I mean, imagine this was a court of law. Josh McDowell says this, the church historian, he says this about the scene. He says, do you realize that if those 500 people were to testify in a court of law for a total of just six minutes each, including cross-examination, 
you would then have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand testimony. 50 hours. 50 hours worth of people coming up one after another. Okay, so did you see the risen Christ? Yes, I did. What did he look like? Well, he looked like this. Are you sure it was him? Yes, I was. 50 hours of evidence from over 500 different people. There is no court of law in Australia that if you had 500 people racked up to explain, I saw it, I saw it, I saw it, would not then discover, well, it must be true. And yet we don't always believe it. The Bible is so very clear. Just because the resurrection is supernatural does not mean that it is not reasonable. Over 500 people saw the risen Christ. And what is so compelling then for me is seeing the risen Christ, seeing Jesus after he rose from the dead, transformed so many different people, including his skeptics. And that's my fourth point. The transformation of skeptics. And people were indeed transformed. Primarily through the reality that they saw Jesus after he had risen from the dead. See, for 2,000 years when Jesus walked the earth, not everyone believed in who he said he was. Not everybody believed that he really was the Christ, that he really was God. Obviously, not everybody went for that. And yet, the New Testament tells us That after Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus meets with a whole array of people whose lives are completely transformed as a result. And many of them, prior to that moment, are actually skeptics. For example, James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, have you ever thought how difficult it must have been to be Jesus' brother? Ever thought about that? Your brother wakes up one morning and says, hey, Dave, I've got something to tell you. Oh, really? What's that? Well, it's all good to tell you, but I'm God. (laughs) Yeah, righto, mate. Thanks anyway. You'd give him a clip around the ear and off they'd go. I mean, it would just be ridiculous. It must have been so difficult for them to comprehend. And it was. Mark's gospel details for us in chapter 3 that Jesus' family were convinced that he was crazy. Legit mad. Oh, this is embarrassing. He's going around telling everybody he's God again. Imagine it. Imagine it's your family. It's awkward. It is difficult. In John's gospel, in John chapter 7, it says that his brothers never believed in him. James never believed in him. All he wanted to do is give him a clip around the ear and please stop telling everybody you're God. It's embarrassing. But then... We're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that when Jesus rose from the dead, he sought out James. He wanted to see his brother. And when James encountered Jesus, James's life was radically transformed as a result. James, in that moment, becomes a Christian. Just a few years later, he would be leading the church in Jerusalem. And then just a few decades on from that, he would go on to die for his faith. And it was not a pleasant death. See, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church at at that time. And the religious leaders, they drove him to the top of the temple and they gathered his whole church around him. And at the top of the temple, they demanded, you tell them that you're leading them along a hoax. You tell them that Jesus did not raise from the dead. You tell them the truth. Well, he does indeed go to the top of the temple and he does indeed tell them the truth. Because he stands at the top of the temple, he tells them about Jesus. And then he tells them, he is risen! 
At that point, they come running up to James. They throw him off the top of the temple. It's a high temple. Miraculously, he doesn't die. So they run to the bottom and they begin to stone him. And all the time they're stoning him, James just keeps talking. Jesus is risen. I saw him. My brother is the king. He's the Messiah. He still won't die. So they grab clubs and they start to club him to death. And just like his brother, he starts to say, Father, forgive them. That may you open their eyes too to who Jesus really is. What would it take for a man to go from a skeptic like James to a sharer of Jesus Christ, even when he's being beaten to death? Well, the New Testament tells us it is this man's encounter with the risen Christ. He cannot deny the one that he saw with his own eyes. Jesus is the king and he has risen. Then there's the apostle Paul himself, the author of 1 Corinthians. When we're first introduced to Paul, his actual name is Saul of Tarsus, who is a Jewish academic scholar. And he actually passionately hates Christians. He hates everything Christians stand for. And so when you get introduced to him in the book of Acts, we see him while Stephen is being stoned. He see him just standing there asking, hey, I'll hold your coats. He's been entertained by all that is taking place because he hates Christians. He hates everything Christians stand for. He wants to see them dead and murdered and martyred for their faith. He thinks it's a disgrace what they stand for. So much so that he asked the religious leaders at the time, listen, I'm aware that even while these people have been stoned, people are running off to Damascus. Let me go after them. I will find them. I'll find the men. I'll find the women. I'll find the children. We'll bring them back here and we'll stone them. It's a disgrace what they stand for. He is a radical persecutor of Christianity. And yet on the way to Damascus, something changes his life. And he explains what happened. As he explains, on the way to Damascus, I encountered the risen Christ. By the time he ends up actually at Damascus, he doesn't want to persecute Christians. He wants to proclaim the gospel. He wants to agree with them and stand with them and tell everybody else, it is true. Jesus is the king. He is the son of God. He is risen again. I saw him with my own eyes. Paul then gives his life to preaching the gospel and traveling the known world, planting and strengthening churches. He would go on to write about a third of the New Testament and around 66 AD, he would be beheaded for his faith on a road just outside of Rome. What would it take for a man's life who was a gospel persecutor to in a moment become a proclaimer? What would it take? Well, Paul tells us it would take an encounter with the risen Christ. And that's exactly what happened to him. He could not deny it. Jesus is the king. When people encountered the risen Christ, skeptics were totally transformed. And the disciples themselves, well, they were totally transformed as well, which is my fifth point, the transformation of the disciples, number five. See, after Jesus dies, the disciples who are, well, in part there for our amusement most of the way through the Gospels because they do things that are crazy just like we do. After Jesus dies, they are in total and utter disarray. See, the disciples are not like wise old heads. They're not seasoned and mature men. They're just young men. They're likely in their late teens to 20s. Jesus is only 33. Rabbis tended to be older than you. 
They're just young men that had gathered around Jesus. And after he has died, after he has been killed, they are scared, they are frightened, they are in total disarray. So much so that the Gospels tells us that in that moment, they're huddled together in an attic. Why? Because they're afraid. They've just seen their leader killed. And they think, if we go out there, that's exactly what's going to happen to us. People have seen us with him. They've seen us with him for months. They're going to grab us. They're going to arrest us. They're going to crucify us. And I don't want that. They are afraid. They are fearful before everybody outside. They are huddled together in an upper room, afraid. And then... As they are huddled together in that attic, the risen Christ appears to them. He enters in through the door. No one seems to open the door. That's cool. But he comes through the door and he arrives. And they see him. And they can't believe it. They see our leader, our savior. He is risen. And these same disciples then leave the attic and begin to proclaim the gospel on the very streets of Jerusalem that just a few moments before they never wanted to go out to. The very streets that Jesus was paraded on as a traitor. The very streets that led to the Savior's place of death. The very streets that just days earlier they were frightened to show their faces in. These men now preach on. And ultimately then, decades later, by one of them, they would be killed for their faith. And they weren't nice deaths. Between the disciples, they were crucified. One was crucified upside down. They were thrown from buildings. They were beaten with rods. They were skinned alive. They were torn apart by wild animals. And they were beheaded. And each and every time, they suffered their death under the premise that he is risen. We've seen him. He's alive! Now, Blaise Pascal, the famous 17th century mathematician, once said this. He said, I believe most the witnesses that are willing to get their throats cut. I'm with him. I believe people that are going to get killed for their faith. I believe people that are willing to be beheaded and torn apart by wild animals, and crucified, and thrown off buildings, and beaten, and stoned, all on the premise of, I cannot deny it. I saw him with my eyes. He is risen. People died in their tens, and tens, and tens, all under the banner that he has risen. And then there's number six. The profound weakness of the various conspiracy theories. And oh my, they are weak. See, like with all key historical events, there are various conspiracy theories that seek to say, you know what, I don't think that actually happened. I think maybe something else happened. And for many years, they've become many and varied, but all not very good. One idea is that, well, maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Okay, um, probably quite unlikely. Why? Well, the Roman centurions were professional executors. There was a general rule of thumb that if you actually brought somebody down from the cross and they were not dead, then you would then proceed to be put on a cross and killed. You made sure they were dead. That's why they put a spear in Jesus' side and his body began to flow with blood and water. Just medical reality that he had died. 
Imagine for a moment that somehow he hadn't died. Well, then we've got to face the fact that he was put in a tomb and embalmed and he's got a massive gash in his side and he's somehow got to get a 3,000 pound stone removed from the front door. Negative. He was dead. The idea that he hadn't died, he had certainly died. That's why they didn't need to break his legs because they're where he's already gone. He's not breathing anymore. Another conspiracy theory is that maybe the disciples returned to the wrong grave after burying Jesus. That maybe they went to the wrong address. They just found somebody else that had, I don't know, risen from the dead. I mean, I don't know how that works. Listen, the truth of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection was preached first in Jerusalem. It was preached right there at ground zero. Why? It's because that's where it all happened and effervescent from. It was right there because they were like, listen, we've gone to the grave. He's not there. He's alive. That the message came first from that place. And they knew the place very importantly. That's why Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus was buried in the grave of a prominent man named Joseph of, Joseph of Arimathea. That's not like an accident. It's an address. It's like everybody knows who Joseph of Arimathea is. He's a well-known figure in Jerusalem and he gave the tomb to Jesus. And that tomb, all the Gospels tells us, was sealed and guards were placed around it. They definitely rocked up to the right address. (laughs) Because when they rocked up to that address, they found the guards weren't there. The stone had been rolled away. This is the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And there's a guy in there telling us he's not here. He's risen again. Another conspiracy theory is that the disciples stole the body. Well, that's very unlikely. As I just said before, when Jesus got arrested, the disciples were scared and frightened to disarray. They ran away as fast as they could. They had no interest in stealing the body. They didn't want to go out the attic. And yet, after seeing post-resurrection Jesus, they confidently began to preach the gospel and went on to die for him. They didn't die for him saying, listen, it's only a hoax. We stole the body. They died for him on the premise. He has risen again. You are as shocked as we are, but we cannot deny it. And then there's this idea that the authorities stole the body. This is probably the weakest of them all. The authorities had every intention that once Jesus is killed, we're done. Thank goodness. He has created so much of a stir. This is really awkward and really difficult. Well, once the disciples begin to start proclaiming, he's alive, he's alive. You know what the authorities would have done? Here's what they would have done. No, he's not. Here he is. And yet they didn't. And they didn't because they couldn't. Because they didn't have the body. And this stir that they had thought they had quelled with the killing of Jesus now began to rise and get out of control like they'd never seen it before as it went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, all relating into the reality that Christ has risen. My friends, just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. The evidence for the resurrection is so very strong and profoundly compelling in each and every way. The Bible records the resurrection as history. The Bible says that the resurrection would happen. It prophesies and predicts about it many, many times. And there's the sheer number of witnesses that are just queuing up tens after tens after tens to tell us he's alive. Many of them were skeptics that had their life completely transformed by the reality that Jesus is alive. 
His own disciples that were in disarray and fear just a few moments before. Now stand before him and proclaim his name because he's alive. And then there's the profound weakness of the various conspiracy theories. Just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean it's not reasonable. And so what is reasonable? What does this all mean? Here's what it means. It means he has risen. He has risen indeed. Jesus Christ really has risen from the dead. For death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. He has risen again. He is alive and now seated at the right hand of the Father. And what that all means is that everything you read in this book is true. Jesus Christ really was the Son of God. Jesus Christ really was God incarnate. And it's all proven to be true and fact by the fact that three days later he rose from the dead. Not even death could hold him. Because he's God. Because what he had come to achieve was indeed finished. And he could take his life back because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords like he always claimed to be. The resurrection proves it. It's true. Jesus was the Son of God. And so all of his words are indeed true. My friends, if you're here today then and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. Everything he said was true. And one of the best things he said of all is for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ came with a message and a hope His message is, listen, believe in me. For in and of yourself, you're all cut off from the Father. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of our sin, we're cut off from God. But I've come after you. And I will give my life as a ransom for many. So that through faith in me, you could be forgiven of your sin. And reconciled to God. And know that heaven is your home. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus himself. So that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, if you don't know Jesus, if you think that coming to church now and again is going to get you saved, listen, that's no different to me going to Macca's thinking that maybe I'll turn into a burger if I keep going. It ain't going to make any difference. The only way through salvation is by saying, Jesus, I take you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you really are God and I want to have you as my king and I believe you died in my place. Lord, would you forgive me? And the Bible says when we do that, In that very moment, there's one mother of a party going on in heaven. Why? Because this individual has just been saved. They've been forgiven of their sin and redeemed and adopted into the very family of God, knowing that heaven is their home. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, do that today. What a great day to do it. The day that he rose from the dead, proving that all this is true. Don't keep running away from it. Run to him and you will find true life in his name. And if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you. Just because the resurrection is supernatural doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. And so I want to encourage you to do all you can then to live in the good of what his resurrection confirms for you. He has risen. 
everything you stand for and hope in, that through my faith in him I've been forgiven and adopted into the family of God. Heaven will be my home. All these things are chosen and seen as promise and true and fact because 2,000 years ago Jesus rose again. Live in the good of it. Your faith hasn't been written on a napkin in the back of a restaurant somewhere. It's been placarded on the scarves and it has been recorded in history. He has risen. So live in the good of this great salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word and I thank you for what it tells us. And Lord, I thank you that you did indeed rise again. Death could not hold you. You took your life back. The same resurrection power of the Holy Spirit is now the same power that lives in the lives of all those who believe in you. Lord, I pray today would be inspiring for us as we leave today. That we would realize you have risen again and that same power resides in our lives. Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for dying in our place and proving once and for all that it is finished by rising again. What a savior you are. And Lord, as we come now to celebrate with some individuals who have put their faith in you as Lord and Savior through the gift of baptism. Oh Lord, would this be a sweet moment for all of us. As they go under the water, would we be reminded symbolically how you have died in their place? And as they come up from the water, would we be reminded symbolically how you have risen again for them? Oh Lord, we are so grateful for you. How glorious your name really is. In Jesus' name.